Lord, we just thank you for this day, this beautiful day that you've created for us. We ask you to bless this time as we study. Open our eyes to what you'd have us to see and guide and lead us through your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amos chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 1, and we're going to remind you that verse 7 started with uh, the idea of the king's mowing, the very first harvest, and now we're going to get to a reference to the summer fruit or the end of harvest time, and it's kind of a play on words that Amos is doing. Verse 1, thus has the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what see you? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. The song of the temple shall be howlings in that day, says the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place, and they shall cast them forth in silence. All right, so here we are. Again, remember, Amos is speaking judgment upon the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And it starts out, you know, God sees, you know, shows Amos something. Remember last time we were talking about, he showed him a plumb line. I've given you a line and you're not measuring up. Now he's saying, Amos, what are you seeing? And Amos says, well, I see the summer fruit. I see the end of the harvest at time. And God is going to play off of that picture. Uh, and he says, and God says, the end is come upon my people Israel. I will not pass again by them anymore. And God is saying, I'm not going to ignore what's going on. You know, and God's grace has an end. And this is something we've got to keep in mind for ourselves, for our nation, for the world. God is very gracious. He's very merciful. But there comes a time when he says, basically, enough is enough. I'm not going to pass over this anymore. And here has been a very recurring theme in the last couple chapters. I will not pass them by anymore. And God is saying, Amos, tell him, you know, you see the summer fruit, Amos, the end. It's complete. The harvest is complete. The harvest is done. And God is telling his people it's coming to an end. And they're going to come into judgment. They're going to be captured by Assyria for the people that, that Amos is preaching to. And then he says, the songs in the temple shall be howlings in that day. And you, if you don't remember or we don't, if you don't know, because we've not talked about it very much, when David established worship in the tabernacle and, and it continued into the temple, he took a certain group of the Levites because they weren't wandering around anymore. And he says, your job is to just sing 24-7 in the temple. So when you go into the temple, you'd hear music. And that was possibly because David loved music so much. You know, he's, you know, but when he went to the temple, he wanted to hear music. And he says, in that day... The sound of the song in the temple will be as howling. Uh, why? Because of the misery going on. Um, might even be to the point where when they go to the temple and they hear this discordant thing that is just done by service. And this is something that God wants us to do. Our service for God is good. But if we're doing service for God just because we expect to have to do service, then it is not good. And we see this sometimes even in ministry within churches. Uh, I talked with a song leader one time. He was talking about his church doing an event up on the mountain. I'm going, well, are you going to take your guitar and sing? He goes, no, that's too much like work. And I'm going, you got to be kidding. You know, 
isn't your song leading a ministry to you? And it really wasn't for him. It was just, he, you know, he's a good player, a good, good, good song leader, but he looked at it as work and not ministry. How many of us look at a lot of what we do for God as work and not ministry? And this is we're saying, you know, the songs are going to be howling. And then he goes, and, and God shall, in that day, many dead there shall be many dead bodies in every place, and, there, and you shall cast them forth with silence. I can't even picture what this must be like. You know, you, you picture this idea of what the aftermath of a, of a battle is. Jerusalem was conquered, and many people died. And I've only seen pictures of, of uh, various things, but some of them look pretty gruesome with bodies everywhere. And it's been said uh, in several of the Civil War battery, battles that there were so many dead bodies that you could hardly walk on the ground anymore because people had, so many people had died. And that's kind of the picture that we're seeing here. There's bodies everywhere. People have died. This captivity was not an easy one for the, the northern kingdom. It was a vicious one. The, the Assyrian people were not nice people. They were not kind to, to prisoners. It's almost like during World War II when people were saying, okay, who, who do you want to be captured by the, by the U.S. and the British or the Russians? And they would always say the U.S. and the British because they treated their people humanely and the Russians weren't known for treating their people, their captives, humanely. And that was the Assyrian people. You, mostly you didn't surrender to them because you were going to be very badly treated anyway, so you'd rather be dead. And this is what he says, there's going to be bodies everywhere. And in silence, you're going to, you know, silence, just picturing the drudgery. Okay, if you've ever done a job that is just drudgery, you might start out pretty happy and excited and talking and everything, but there comes that point where you're just, just doing it. No, and, I've, and I've seen different people in, in places that it's obvious they don't like their job. There's not a smile on anybody's face. Nobody's having a good time. They're, you know, they're working. They're getting a lot done, maybe. But there's just no joy, drudgery, silence. And this is the picture. This work is going to be so bad, so hard, so grueling, so long, silence. No, no mirth, no joy in it. And uh, that's the picture that Amos is pointing for, uh, painting for the people that are getting ready to be conquered. And these people, you know, he is the man of God. And remember last, last week we talked about how in the places that in the northern kingdom, they, were, they had golden calf worship, Baal worship, Astoroth worship, primarily golden calf. Golden calf was started right from the very beginning. And their priest was telling them, well, if you want to keep talking this way, get back to, you know, get back to the Judah. Go south and quit, and quit talking this uh, treasonous talk. And this is where we as Christians are in our day and age. You know, we can be looked at as being treasonous because we're not, we're not agreeing with where the gov government's trying to take us. We're not agreeing with where the world's trying to take us. And God is going to judge this country eventually. I don't know when, I don't know how soon, but our country is headed for judgment if the revival doesn't start and doesn't happen. And this is what happened to Amos. He's being told, you're a traitor. <laughs> Verse 4. Hear this, O you that swallow up the needy, even to, the poor, even to make the poor in the land to fail. 
saying, when will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn, or the Sabbath that we may sell, set forth wheat? Taking an ephah, and making the ephah small and the shekel great, and testifying and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwells therein? And it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and, and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and will heart darken the earth in, in the clear day. And I will turn your feast into mourning, and all your songs to lamentations. And I will bring up a sackcloth upon all loins and baldness upon every head. And I will make it as the morning of the only sun and the end of thereof of a bitter day. Here is Amos giving the, the why that they're being judged and how severely they're going to be judged. So it starts out, you know, hear this, you that swallow up the needy, and even to make the poor of the land to fail. And this whole idea of swallowing up to, to crush, and it has the idea of thirsting for blood. Okay, you're, you're, after, you're after the poor and the needy, the weak. You know, you, you're not even being honorable to the weak. You're, you're trying to hurt them. And the sad thing is, in our world, we're seeing that same thing happening, where the needy and the poor are being preyed upon. Elderly are being preyed upon to take all you know, get them, take them to the cleaners because they're you know they're they're easy marks, uh, and we look at this and we say, this is what God was condemning Israel for, the idea of not taking care of the poor and the needy and really going after them and not everybody obviously but though a lot of the enough of them were, and it says. And, and verse 5 says, And you say, When will the new moon be gone that we may sell, or the Sabbath that we can set, set forth wheat? So he's saying, You can't wait to get past the religious holidays so that you can go back to business. And that takes us back to the idea of why do we do what we do? Are we doing it to really minister to God and serve God? Or are we doing it just because that's what we're supposed to do? All right, and here Amos is saying to the people, "You're just, yeah, you're 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 walking after God by not selling. It is a Sabbath, and you're and you're closed, but you just can't wait to get the Sabbath over, so you can get back to work. Your your mind focus is not on God; it's on okay, you know, another another three hours, and we can open up our markets. Another two hours, we can open up our market. You know, another hour, and we can we can open up." And their heart was not right. And this is something that's been Amos' theme throughout the whole book. You're following after God with the wrong motives. And something I say frequently, you know, coming to church is a great thing to do. We come to church, we hear the message, we fellowship with one another. You know, we come to Bible studies, we hear the word of God. Uh, we have tithes and offerings that we give. But if we're giving them for the wrong reason, the wrong motivation, none of it is any good. And we need to keep in mind that God wants our whole heart. Not just our, our obedience. Remember that Samuel told Saul that God desires obedience 
uh, uh, more, more than sacrifice. Okay? And that was when he didn't kill the Amalekite king and didn't destroy all the stuff. And he says, well, you know, we brought this stuff so we could sacrifice. And God, you know, God doesn't want to sacrifice for the wrong reasons. He wants obedience. And obedience means such a higher depth. It means it's our whole heart involved in that, that obedience. Not go, okay, God, I'm being obedient. Okay, wonderful, but are you wanting to be obedient or are you just being obedient? And I've seen this even as a manager. There were times people were very obedient. They did everything they were supposed to do, but you could tell they didn't want to be doing it. You know, they were doing it just because they wanted to stay out of trouble. And those were the people I wanted to look at promoting and, and giving great positions to. Yes, they did everything you were asked. But there's an idea of, are you doing it because you're out there, you're part of the vision? And when, we, when a church casts out a vision or a business casts out a vision, they want people to really buy into the vision, not just the work. And people who buy into the vision stand out. They stand out. Okay, yes, I want to I serve God. God's given us a vision. You know, we're going to go out and meet, meet, reach the lost. Most Christians don't go out and reach the lost. Most Christians don't even like to talk about God in amongst people. You know, and we need to be able to look at that to say, God, how can I reach out for the lost? And it's letting him do it, and through prayer. And it says these people are saying, you know, we just can't wait for the Sabbath to be over. And then the next thing is they, they say you're making the ephah small and the shekel great. So in other words, he's saying on your balances, in your, in your containers, you know, an ephah, an ephah is roughly about 80-pound container. It's a pretty good-sized container. He goes, you're making it small. They weren't telling people it was smaller. They were saying, oh, you're buying, you know, let's use words we are. You're buying a gallon, and we're going to charge you the same thing. Or they said that you made the shekel great. In other words, when you were weighing out the money for it, it, wasn't, it was not matching up. And it was the idea of having two sets of weights on your, on your, on your scale. One for when you're selling, which had a lighter weight to, for what they're buying. And then when you're buying and taking the money, you had a heavier weight to make sure that you got a better deal out of it. And that's what he's saying. You're cheating the people. Okay. Now, in our day, it's still obvious that we're not getting as much, you know, if you pay attention. They weren't telling them that they were making it smaller. They were just making it smaller. Because you had to trust your, and back in those days, you pretty much had to trust the, the, the merchant to give you what you paid for. All right, if he measured out a cup of, cup of flour for you because everything was bulk and they had to measure, you, you assumed that his cup was a cup. All right. Uh, you didn't want seven and a half ounce cup. You wanted your eight ounce cup. And he's thinking, well, if I can put a seven and a half ounce cup out there, I'll save a half ounce on everybody, but I'll charge them full price. And I will, after eight customers, uh, you know, uh, 16 customers, I'd have another cup of flour to sell. And this is what was going on. And it was deceptive. And God says, I'm not going to allow it. And verse 6 it says, you, you buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. In other words, he's talking about servitude. You're, you're buying, you know, the needy are so much in need that you're buying them. And, they're, and the really poor, you're giving them a pair of shoes for a day's labor. And that's, you know, and he says, you're, you're taking advantage of people. And then it says, and sell the refuse of the wheat. 
All right, so they're not even selling the best of the stuff. You know, they're, they're cheating the people, buying them cheaply, selling them the junk, and God's saying, no, that is not what I expect. And when I read these things, I think about the difference between the way the world thinks and the way God wants us thinking. And we talk about this a lot because God wants us thinking like he thinks. And that means not to gripe about the way things are, to treat people with respect, to, to try to help people, to not be cheating people, loving people, forgiving people. The world's way is get everything I can from them and then throw them away. And unfortunately, many businesses run on that principle, even with their employees. It's use up these people, and when we're done with them, we'll say next. And it's a really sad way for a business to run because it, it eventually gets a bad reputation, it gets a bad, bad opinion, and then to a degree, we'll run out of people that are worth anything. And this is what he's saying. You're, you're trying to cheat everybody. You're trying to hurt everybody. And God says, because you're my people, you're supposed to be doing it my way, I'm judging you. And this judgment was going to come. And verse 8 says, oops, verse 7, The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their work. And this one goes back to this idea of the excellency of Jacob, which is based in the grace of God. Okay, remember we talked about this last week, that God says you're, you're great. Why? Because you came from Abraham, and I chose Abraham. And because I chose you, I've been giving you grace, and I have respect. It's the way God sees us as his, as his children, his bride. He sees us as perfect, even though we're not perfect and we don't deserve it. He, he could be saying the same thing. By the excellency of my children that follow me. Why? Because of the grace he gives us. And this is the wonderful thing that I keep coming back to so often. God's grace. He loves us because of his grace. Jesus died for us so that we could have grace bestowed upon us and have all of God's mercy, righteousness, and riches at our, at our beck and call, basically. And he says, these are my perfect children. And I love it that God sees us as perfect. Yeah. And it should motivate us to see each other in that same way. Treat people the way God treats us and treats them. Being more merciful, not demanding punishment, not demanding more uh, just being willing to say, okay, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm willing. Now, is that an easy statement to follow? It's an easy statement to make. It's not a real easy statement to follow. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes the work of God and the Holy Spirit upon us to be able to say consistently, okay, God, your will, whatever you want. Because our will is, you know, I want to be, God, I want to be happy, I want to be joyful, and I don't want any problems. And God says, that's not what I want for you. I want you to grow. And being what we think of as a perfect life will never lead us toward growth. You know, we need the trials in our life to help us grow. And the more we fight those trials, the longer the trials will be, be, be upon us. Because God says, you're going to pass the trial. And he just keeps putting the trial back on us over and over and over again or leaving us in the midst of the trial until we finally just surrender to God and say, okay, God, I've had, I've had enough. I surrender. And if you've been fighting God for hours, days, weeks, years, decades, <laughs> centuries, <laughs> for some people their entire life, they fight God and don't, rel don't relinquish. 
And I can just picture God up in heaven saying, are you going to learn? Are you going to just surrender? Are you just going to give, give in and do things the way I want it done? And this whole idea, God brings judgment to those who continually flaunt his word. And this is the one, the one that we see here. And God says, I won't forget. I won't forget the evil done to these people. Verse 8 says, Surely the land, shall not the land tremble for this, and everyone mourn that dwells therein. It shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast down and drowned as by the flood of, of Egypt. And this is the whole idea. The land tremble, stagger, staggering around uh, because of the attack that God put them under. You know, and I've, I've seen just, again, pictures of these things. I've never experienced this whole idea of being just so staggered by the blow that came, came that way. I know other people have. I've, I know they have. I have not had that. But I can, he's talking about it's going to be so bad, and everyone will be in mourning. Total sadness when God says, I'm going to destroy this land. It's your land, and I'm taking it away because you did not follow the rules. Remember, when God gave the land, he told Abraham, it's your land. Unconditional. The land that Israel lives in is theirs. God gave it to Abraham. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt into the land, God gave it to them conditionally. He says, if you will follow my rules you will live in the land. If you do not, it will be taken away from you. Now this most recent time that Israel has been put back in their land, God did not put a restriction on them. It's their land. Which means I believe they're going to be there until the tribulation period and Jesus Christ comes back to reign for the millennial kingdom. Because God gave the land to Abraham without condition. And with Abraham, he said, everywhere your foot touches is yours. Yeah, and Israel, unfortunately, is not following God. Right now, they're living completely under the grace and mercy of God, giving them back their land. But we, we look at these things and say, God is going to cause problems. And he says, I'm going to cast you down and as a flood of Egypt. Now, for most of us, we don't really understand that. Egypt, especially in that day, flooded all the time, every year. And many places are by big rivers, used to have that problem. The river would flood, crest over, you know, flood all the fields, make the fields very fertile, very dangerous but, you know, place to be, but the fields would get all these nice nutrients. And now we build all these great big levees and, and flood controls and all these things to try to keep these rivers from flooding because we have multi-billion, trillion dollar cities sitting next to them that don't want to be flooded out. And, uh, but the Nile flooded over every year. And it, said, and it usually did it quickly. Now, they didn't have a whole lot of warning that the rains up in the mountains in the middle of you know, Africa were sending down all this flood water to them. All of a sudden, they'd be inundated with water from a long ways off. Uh, and many people would die in these floods because all of a sudden, everything would be flooded. And now they were used to it in one sense because that was their life. And he says, God's judgment will be just like that, quick sudden, you know, almost like we've been warning you, we've been warning you, we've been warning you, but you don't pay any attention, so it's going to seem sudden. Think back to Noah. Noah's building an ark for 120 years. 
telling everybody God's going to destroy the world. And then one day, after being ignored, all of a sudden it starts raining and they go, oh, maybe this crazy man was, knew what he was talking about and it was too late. And as far as they were concerned, it was sudden. Only 120 years worth of you know, warnings, but it was, it was sudden. You know, the, the rapture is coming soon. How soon, I don't know, but it could be today, could be tomorrow, could be a hundred years from now, you know, it could be a thousand years from now, I don't know. But when it hits, it's going to be sudden. Even think about something less mundane. Uh, when I was growing up, I never figured I'd ever retire. Now I'm looking at retirement just around the corner. Uh, it seemed, it, to me, in, one many, in many ways, it seems sudden. All of a sudden, I am here, now to a place where I can actually think about retiring. You know, I don't plan to ever retire from being a pastor, but, you know, but now I can be able to say, wow, you know, it came suddenly. Yeah, I, I only had 45 years or more to look for, you know, 47 if you start when I first started work, you know, at 18, 47 years to look, look to it and all of a sudden it's like just around the corner, suddenly, yeah, because uh, I never thought about it before. And this is what he's saying, it'll happen suddenly. You've been warned, you've been warned. Amos warns them, Jonah warns them, Obadiah warns them, Jeremiah warns them, and it'll just be like suddenly it happens. Oh, what? Oh, yeah. My eyes are opened. I see. And we end up this way. We live our life like this so often that the suddenness of what happens, even things that we look at and say it's going to happen. And it says suddenly and it will overwhelm. And then in verse 9, and it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon and will darken the earth in the clear day. Now, we know that in Jer when uh, Jeroboam II was conquered, there was a mighty uh, eclipse in that area that darkened, the, darkened their area. There is question on whether that is what is being referred to in this, in this uh, particular statement. It could very well be. But remember, we've also talked about how so many times prophecies have an immediate uh, fulfillment and a long-term one. And this whole idea of having the light darkened. You know, light oftentimes in the scriptures talks about God's word, his truth, and his doctrine. How much of God's word and truth and doctrine have been darkened in our day and age? You know, we, we shine out like a light. When we want to follow God, we shine out. We are bright. Even the weakest bulb in darkness shines out. And it says, there will be darkness. God says in, in the end days that he will shorten the days. Now, what does that mean? I don't know exactly what that means. But he says, is it literally just shorten to saying, okay, we're only going to have seven years and, and we're done? Is he literally sh shorten the days? We don't know on that. One thing we do know is that the earth is slowing down. It, each day is technically getting longer, only by, by just fractions of seconds. But we know that the world that God started spinning at creation is slowing down. Just as any top does when it, when it gets done spinning, it slows down, it starts to wobble. And we're seeing our axis wobble pretty frequently. It used to be long terms, close to a century between wobbles. Now we're down to, last I heard was 10 years between major, major wobbles on our axis. Uh, you know, and when we have a wobble, we have major earthquakes on those times. 
God talks about an earthquake that just about tears apart the world in Revelation. Will that be because the wobble of our earth has come to the place where it has slowed down so much that we have a major earthquake on a huge axis shift? It is quite possible. It is quite possible. We are slowing down and going to see it. There is an end to this the spin that we have. And like I said, I almost picture like I said, okay, let me spin this thing. And then verse 10, it says, I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth upon your loins and baldness upon every head. And, and I will make it as the morning of the only son and the end of the, thereof as a bitter day. So he says, I'm going to turn all your joyous things, you know, your feast, parties, basically. Because these feasts are not just, you know, the religious feasts. He's talking about your feast, your, 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 your parties. And they were famous, you know, they were getting famous for their parties. Eat, drink, and be merry for, for, you, for tomorrow you die is not a new, new thing from the Greeks. It's been around forever. If you don't trust God, a lot of people believe, well, what is there to do? I'm just going to enjoy myself. All of these feasts are going to be mourning. Your songs will be lamentations. You, you think your songs. Have you ever, as you've grown with God, have you ever got to a place where you listen to something or watch something that you might have even thought was good before and then you start realizing that it really isn't no life in it? I'm getting that way with most of the songs I listen that aren't, especially aren't Christian, but even a lot of Christian songs. No life in them. And what do we watch? There's practically no life on anything on TV. Uh, you know, everything is turning into lamentation by the world for the world standards. And then God says, "I will bring sackcloth upon your loins and baldness upon your head, and will make it like the morning of an only son." And this is the idea of sackcloth. You know, they put sackcloth and ashes upon themselves, and then they would. The balding of the head literally meant they. You know, if you were really, really sad, you started pulling your hair out type idea. <laughs> And apparently they actually did this in many times because this is referred to by the prophets frequently. You know, well, you could be shaving your head, pulling your hair out. I mean, to, to fully be in bitter remorse back then was to put sackcloth on, shave your, shave your head, and be pouring ashes over your head because the hair was an adornment. The hair was something you weren't supposed to be cutting. So when you were in extreme mourning and lamentation, you would take off your nice, good garments. You would put on the sackcloth, the itchy, you know, uh, burlap is something that we kind of think of. You know, if you ever have touched burlap, it's, you would you know, think about wearing burlap, you know, as your clothing and shaving your head. And, and it says, be like the morning of the only sun. And this is a pretty big deal in their day, especially. It's still a big deal in our day if you don't have your family name carried on. But in this day, it was a big deal. Your only child, your only son died. You know, that would be a huge deal to the family. And he says, you're, that's how bad it's going to be. You're losing your country, and it's going to be that fast, that hard. And the, the end thereof as a bitter day. And you, know, you get to the end of a hard day, a hard day of work, a hard day. Of, you know, sometimes it's just, oh, I'm so glad this day is over. You hear that a lot. I don't know that I've had too many days like that in my life, but a lot of times you hear that, especially from the world. I'm just glad this day's over. You know, I don't know if I could have handled anything else wrong. Well, did you trust God in any of it? <laughs> and uh, it's going to be, you know, it'll be like the end of a bitter day. Verse 11. 
Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst of water, but of the hearing of the word of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and the young men faint for thirst, they that swear by the sin of Samaria, and say, Your God, O Dan, lives, and the manner of Beersheba lives, even they shall fall and never rise again. Here is a very intriguing statement that God makes. He says, Behold, in the in the day the days come, says the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but for the hearing of the word of the Lord. You know, almost I'm seeing our country getting to this point where there's almost a famine of hearing the word of God. There are so many speakers that are out there on the radio, in churches, on television, that aren't teaching God's word. You know, and people are, that desire it are having it to be harder and harder to find. You know, there are pastors out there that are dropping services in their churches because they're going, well, I'm not going to waste my time. Nobody's coming. It's not worth it. You know, and a lot of that comes down to how are you measuring success within a church? And believe me, it's hard to try to figure out what success is in a church sometimes. In a business, you make money or you don't make money. If you're making money, you were successful. Uh, you know, if you are a, a volunteer organization and you're trying to help the, feed the hungry, if you fed enough people, you were successful. How does a church determine whether you're successful or not? You know, well, we got lots of people. Well, I know lots of churches that have tens, and, tens of thousands of people that aren't successful churches. They're just large. They're not teaching the word of God. Their people aren't growing. But how do you determine growth in people? A lot of it takes is just patient watching of the life. You know, and that is where true growth in ministry happens. And here God says, there's going to come a day when there's going to be a famine for my word. It's going to be harder and harder to find. And it says, they will wander from sea to sea and from north even to east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word, and they and shall not find it. There comes a time when God says, we're at an end. You waited, you know, and I've heard this from people, you witness to them, well, you know, I'll just wait until just before I die. All right, when are you going to die? I don't know. Well, how are you going to wait to just before you die then? You know, you, what if you die suddenly? You know, not everybody has warning that they're going to die. Most people don't have warning that they're going to die. And he says, people, if they wait too long, they'll run, they'll run all over the place trying to find it. And it's kind of interesting. He goes, they, they, run from, they wander from sea to sea. And it's basically, as far as Israel's concerned, from, from the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Sea or the Red Sea, one of the, one, depending on where, what part of it. And they, they will run from the north even to the east. And it's just kind of interesting. They didn't say north to south. They didn't say east to west. You know, east to, sea to sea was as close to east to west as he has. But they run from the north to the east because their border pretty much was the Jordan River. So he says, you start up north, up around the Euphrates where it's supposed to be, and you keep bordering it, and you can't find God's word. And we look at this, and what is happening in our world, it is becoming harder and harder to find God's word taught. 
Not impossible yet, not completely impossible, but it gets harder. I've been to churches where God's word is not seeming to be taught. And you go, wow, what, you know, what, what, are we, what, are we, what are we looking at here? We have whole denominations that are throwing away God's word and saying, well, it's, you, know, you want to believe it, that's fine, but we're not. You know, we're not going to call sin, sin. We're not, going to, you know, we're not going to talk about the blood of Jesus. We're not going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. We're not going to talk about creation. We're not going to talk about sin. I don't know what they talk about, but they're not talking about the things that make churches truly Christian. And there's lots of churches out there. People are running to and fro to have their ears tickled. And we see it even in churches. People will stay at a church for two, three, four years and have something said that they don't like and go find another church because God's called them to another church. They, their foot was stepped on, their toes got stomped on, and they're going to go someplace else because they're offended. And they'll be fine at that church for three or four years until they hear something that offends them and they'll move on to the next church. And after, after about 10 years, they go back to the first church. You know, uh, because they've run out of churches that they think they could go to or, they, or the pastor's left or whatever. But we look at this and we say, God, what is it that you desire for us? And it's going to get harder and harder. And it says, in that day shall the fair virgin, the young men, faint for thirst, or the very strongest. This means the strongest. The young, the young unmarrieds, the, the young men, the, the people in the epitome of their strength. They're fainting from thirst. If they're fainting from thirst, the poor and needy are and the elderly are and everybody else because if the strongest can't handle it. The rest, of the, the rest of the country can't handle it, he says. And he's painting a picture about how bad it is going to be for God's word. And it's kind of an amazing thing today. You know, when you start talking about Jesus and, and God's word, a lot of people have two reactions. They either get very violently upset about it, or it's like a breath of fresh air. They've never heard the gospel message, the true gospel message. And this is why it is so important for us to be able to just defend what we believe and share our testimony. Because it's an amazing thing when you tell people. You know, and they go, I've never heard that. I've never heard that's what it takes to get to God. You follow Jesus, plain and simple. But this world is making it so difficult, so hard, and our churches are agreeing with the word, with the word world, and trying to say, well, just do good. The Jews, after the destruction of the temple, basically had to figure out how does somebody please God. We no longer have the sacrifices. We can't go to Yom Kippur and, and have the, the atoning sacrifice. So what was their answer? Do more good than bad and you'll be okay with God. Even though all of the scriptures say that that's not a true statement, they had no other option. We don't have a temple to offer sacrifices, which is why many of the ultra-Orthodox and the Orthodox Jews want a temple so bad. They want to be offered, able to offer the sacrifices for the atonement of sin because they know that what the scriptures say even doesn't match what they're teaching people to get to heaven. They know it. And th for some of them, it bothers them. You know, most of them are not, not that big a deal, but for a lot of them, it bothers them. that If, if this is God's word and they, and they believe it is, especially the first five books of the Bible, we have to follow it and they can't follow it. And there's a problem with where they're at. Now, I don't understand why the Jews haven't just made a tabernacle and, and worshipped at a tabernacle. Seems like that's what God told them to do in the first place. But they're so set on we have to have our temple to, to worship in. 
That has never made sense to me. You know, God told him to create a tabernacle. David and Solomon were the one that changed it to a temple in Jerusalem. And before that, it had always been a tabernacle that could be moved to wherever they wanted it to be. And it would not be a problem for them to worship in a tabernacle. It would not, because that's what God said, other than Jesus fulfilling the, <laughs> the, rule, the, the law and the sacrifices. But we also know the temple is what is coming. God promised there will be another temple. Um, and it says, they that swear by the sin of Samaria. And this is so interesting. They make an oath to God by the sin of Samaria. What is the sin of Samaria? It is golden calf worship. All right, That is what the, the sin of Samaria is and other, other things. But primarily, they think about Samaria as the capital of the northern kingdom. And it is been golden calf worship. He says, by their sin, you're, you're swearing by your God. And then it says, your God, Odan, lives, again, the golden calf. We told you, remember, when the northern kingdom started, Jeroboam I set up golden calf worship, and he set a golden calf in Dan, the, the northernmost city, and a golden calf in Bethel, the southernmost major city on the way to Jerusalem, because... And remember, why did he do it? He didn't want people going to Jerusalem. Because if they went to Jerusalem, they would feel associated with the rest of the Israelites and might want to become a unified nation again. So he took them into golden calf worship. And it says, In the manner of Beersheba lives, even they shall fall and never raise, rise again. He goes, Even those of you who are truly worshiping your God are going to fall. Your God won't deliver you. And this was a very strong statement at the end. Okay, many of you were telling you you're sinning against God and you're, and you're having a problem. Okay, those of you who aren't believing in, in, in Yahweh and not following him and you're following the golden calf and all of these, you're going to fall too. Your God's not going to protect you. And this has been what goes on all the time. When people slip into idolatry, they start to believe that their God is, is going to keep them and, and be able to protect them. And Amos at this point is saying, huh, you guys worshiping the golden calf, you guys worshiping all these other gods, your gods aren't going to protect you. And he could have referred back to Egypt. You know, look at that. The Egyptian gods couldn't keep protect them. Because remember, we've talked about this. The ten plagues were destruction of all the gods in the Egyptian pantheon. Ra, you think you're, you're the god of light? I'm going to make it dark for three days. Ra's not going to be able to protect you. The Nile River's God, you think your God's going to protect you? I'm going to put a plague on the Nile and turn it to blood. Over and over, he put a, you know, an attack upon their various gods to say, you think your gods are, you know, your gods are strong? Okay, you know, it's dark. Okay, all, all you guys that follow Ra, you, you pray to Ra all you want. It's not going to be dark until I say it's, it's, going, to, it's going to be dark until I say there'll be light. You know, and... God constantly will bring up to the fact, your God's not going to protect you. Your God's not going to keep you. You're not going to be victorious through your God. And we need to be very careful because sometimes we in our day will say, well, you know, God, uh, I don't have any idols. Most of us have idols in our life. You know, whether it's work or television or sports or, or various activities or, or some sin that besets us can be an idol in our life. And we somehow think that is going to keep us. That is going to give us strength. That is going to help us through our problems. And God says, no, it's not. It's not what's going to happen. Your idol is not going to keep you because God is God. 
And when he says something's going to happen, it will. And that's a good news. When God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. When God says we're going to heaven because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, he'll take us to heaven. When he's preparing mansions for us because he said he's preparing mansions or suites of rooms for us, he's preparing the suites of rooms for us. When he says that we get everything by his grace, we can count on it. Yeah. And, I, and I really find it strange because there are so many people who say they're Christians who don't trust God to get them by in this world but say, well, I'm going to trust God to take care of me for eternity. And I have a real problem with that. You can't trust God to get you, get you handled for 60 to 100 years of life and yet you think that you can trust a God to, to, for eternity? What a deception they're living in. You know, they're living in all the defeat and everything of this world expecting to live in victory in eternity. And if they're saved, they're going to have victory in eternity, but they wasted this life. You know, live in the victory, the glory, the power of God today. You know, the victory that Jesus had over death at the resurrection is the same victory we're supposed to be able to live in today if we will just live in it. The children of Israel wandered around in death and defeat for 40 years because of their rejection of God. Did not enter into the prosperity that God promised them. So many Christians are wandering around in the wilderness in death and destruction and defeat instead of crossing over to the Jordan and saying, I want to live in God's prosperity and blessings. You know, and in the, in the wilderness is full of murmuring and complaining and griping and God, I, you know, I'm not living a prosperous life. And God says, you rejected it. You didn't want to go into it. I've offered it to you. And when we reject it, God will let us live around in misery. That's what we chose. Our actions have consequences. We choose the defeat. He'll allow us to have that defeat. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your clear warnings. Lord, help us to see you and you only in everything so that suddenly will not happen in our lives, that we will be able to follow you. And Lord, we thank you that, that you give warnings before you, before you come. Not that we always hear those warnings, but that you give them. And we just thank you. Help us to, to live the way we're supposed to live. In Jesus' name, amen.